Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. Just a couple of topics this week. England, South Africa and New Zealand, West Indies. But with the context of the Future Tours programme, Dean Elgar's presses and a whole host more. We're going to struggle to keep this under an hour is the sweepstake in the room. All coming up on the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. Well, boys, like I said in the intro, we've only got a couple of things on the run sheet, but there's a lot to unpack through the course of a test match that's taken place at the home of cricket, uh, Lords, which unfortunately I missed out on. I, I was just about on a plane um, heading out of London as the test match uh, kicked off. And then New Zealand in the West Indies as well, playing T20s and ODIs. So we've got a lot to kind of get through. We'll start, I think, England, uh, South Africa. Um I'll open it up to the floor, but the, you know, the first note in the run sheet is England's aggressive approach was always going to fail at some point. Now what? Um, yeah, so I don't know who wants to open up because, yeah, I'm certainly not going to be able to keep my mouth shut on this one. Don't look at me. I have no prepared remarks this week. Look, <laughs> you take the good, you take the bad, you take the both, and there you have the facts of life. Really. That's, that's, all, you, that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. And uh, thanks for joining us on the Top Order Podcast. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Next uh, week, we talk about... No. I think uh, we're being a bit unfair to the South Africans, aren't we? The South African bowling lineup to say that, you know, England threw it away. To be fair, they did throw a lot of their wickets away and they weren't uh, test match dismissals how I would, you know, like to see them. But they bowled really well. I think between the top three seamers, they took, what, six, 17 of the wickets? Mm. They were really good. That's kind of my point. You know, you've got to give South Africa South Africa credit when they play well. You also can't overreact to England are effectively four and one with all out attack. You are going to win some and you are going to lose some by virtue of the English press being who they are. They've slightly overreacted to both scenarios mm. and as a team and as players within that team you've just got to temper your emotional state to make sure that you don't get too high and believe in your own hype when it's all going really really well which they've done a pretty good job at, at to be fair I think and you also don't take this one and, and get really down on yourself because you are going to win some with this mode of playing and you are going to lose some as well you're going to have chases where you make 370 and chases where you get bowled out for 140. If there's a learning from it, maybe they can take this scenario when they're up against a really good attack and go, let's just temper that a little bit. But it doesn't seem like they want to go that way. It seems like they want to go even further again. And hey, that's on them and we'll see the results and they'll stand by those win or lose. Before you get before we get on to England, because I know we will un, kind of unpack all of that stuff, I do think it's, it's worth actually starting on the, on the positives and starting with South Africa because I, I completely agree. I, I think that, uh, we might have said it a couple of weeks ago, that it felt like England was being billed as the favourite for this series, you know, not sort of almost quite a warm favourite. I, I, and certainly the, the media that I'd read beforehand, but... South Africa's top of the uh, World Test Championship table. They um, they may have just gone top. I can't remember where they were sitting beforehand. You no, know, they're, they're top. But they were they were you know right up near the top. They played very well in New Zealand. They beat India at home. Like this is not. I don't feel like this is a surprise that when you that the South African side has performed well and and I don't feel like it's kind of a fluke that they're at the top of the table. I mean, how, how are we feeling about that kind of line of thinking? Absolutely no surprise at all. We saw it here in New Zealand. South Africa performed very well with the ball. They are an incredibly well-credentialed bowling attack. They want have one of the greatest bowlers in the world in Kagisa Rabada leading the attack, and they've got some tremendous support, some variation. Norkia, pure pace. Marco Janssen, who is developing into an, an excellent, almost world-class all-rounder at this point, averaging 20-odd with the bat, 20 with the ball. So, Do you know what his strike rate is at the moment? Through six tests or seven tests? With the ball? Yeah. Uh, I know. You ask me. Uh, Raj, what's his strike rate? It's about 35. It is 0.6. Excellent, excellent research from you. Um, so, look, there's no surprise that their bowling attack is excellent. The The bit that surprises me is how well their batting has developed. I think Sarel Over, if I've pronounced that correctly, is developing into a fine-looking opening bat. He's got plenty of help in Elgar, and they just build guys around that. And they've done just enough with the bat to get them through test matches. And, hey, they're, what, 6-2 and two at the moment, and they're in a really good position. And, you, you, I mean, you touched on all of that. You didn't talk about Maharaj, which who is, you know, I think one Quite of the... holding spinner. Well, I and think even he's... better than that? I think he's a better, much better than a holding spinner. I think, he, you know, they used him as an attacking weapon to kind of bring him on, pick up those couple of wickets early in that second innings. 
He was used in an attacking way here in New Zealand on, you know, in a place where spin doesn't play a part. And Maharaj showed that you can, you can, uh, you know, make it impactful here in New Zealand. And then, uh, you know, you, all, all the seamers you mentioned, but you didn't mention Lungi and Gidi, who I actually discovered just kind of stumbled across. He's the number one. He's got the best average of any South African bowler of, of all time. Uh, based on you know minimum two thousand deliveries or something, his average is like twenty under twenty one in mm-hmm. Test cricket. Mm-hmm. His also his middle name is True Man, which I thought was even even better than that stat, uh, particularly when we were doing the uh, you know the Fred Truman uh, mention on the Hall of Fame. But yeah, their their attack is just so well balanced. They're you know you mentioned Janssen, you we've just mentioned Maharaj. They can both kind of bat pretty well as well. Mm-hmm. So you've got seven and eight. Their mm-hmm. team just top to bottom kind of looks really balanced. And yeah, I feel like this is really a team on the rise. And you know maybe we'll be you know sitting here in a couple of weeks and England would have bounced back and beaten them two one. And uh, suddenly their World Test Championship chances don't look that good. But they feel like a side who are, are pushing forward. And uh, yeah. I guess I don't feel the excitement that, that you guys do about South Africa. I don't quite believe them yet. Uh, I look at their bowling attack, world-class. It really can restrict anybody to, to anything. But I don't believe their batsmen are ones that are going to put on the big daddy hundreds. They're not going to put on scores of 500 or something that they need to put on to beat the Australias, the Indias, for example. If you look at their batting lineup and you know you're picking the first two 11s of the world, do their batsmen really get anywhere near that? Probably not. Yeah, probably fair. Um, but look, at the moment, they're doing enough. Their bowlers, all their bowlers needed them to do was keep them in the game for, for three days on this occasion. Mm-hmm. But normally that's all they need to do and they're doing enough. Yeah, I think the press are getting a little bit carried away from an England perspective. I've listened to Ben Stokes' comments. I, I think the mood in the dressing room and the way that they're approaching it is very different to the way that the media are approaching it. I think if I look at this game... Um, look, I, I'm not going to say the result would have been different, but if the coin comes down the other way, you would have expected James Anderson, who I thought bowled brilliantly in this test match and at the age of 40 um, showed a trick or two to some of the old, uh, the, the younger stages, um, uh, particularly a couple of those guys that are around the squad, Robinson and Potts, who uh, you know, are in a, probably a shootout to play in this next uh, this next test match potentially. So that, that could have made a little bit of a difference. I think the other thing, Andrew Strauss is heading up a review of England cricket at the moment, concentrating on the high-performance setup. Um, Listen to a really insightful piece with him um, in the week. Um, The context of this is England have been number one in the world for about a year in the last 20 years. (laughs) And on a blended average, we're about probably the fourth or fifth or sixth best side in the world. So realistically the expectation that's been set by the results against New Zealand and India um, and and this sort of clamour that, you know, Baz Ball and all this crap uh, has really just sort of been something fueled, I think, by the red tops in um, in the UK. Um, and, and now they're kind of, you know, that kind of tall poppy piece trying to bring Zach Crawley down. Yeah, two weeks ago, they're talking about a partnership that set up a chase with him and Alex Lees that where they had positivity and looked really good. And I think he got 50 odd. Um, and now they're saying he should never play again. And um, so I, I, I do think that there is this, this massive schizophrenic press um, that are fueling a lot of this. I think that the calmness in the dressing room will be, we're going to bounce back. Um, we might not bounce back in the next game. It doesn't really matter whether we do. And I've said a long time now, this is going to get worse before it gets better for England. If they do want to build into a side that is at the top of that World Test Championship, it's going to take three, four, you know, five years for them to do that um, and do it consistently. So, yeah, I, I, I do take a little bit of this with a pinch of salt around what's been what's been portrayed in the media, I think. If I look at this English batting lineup and I have a look at them and, and you know, the one-two is actually where the where the, probably the weakness is because you're three, four, five, six all the way down to Stokes is actually probably as good as you're going to get mm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to focus a little bit on Ollie Pope because I think that he's going really well. Uh, he always looks really good when he was batting down at six and he was in Australia and he was getting out in strange ways. And it was good to see him actually kick on and get some runs in the last couple of tests he's played. What do you make of his change, Binksy? I, I think the, the key is that they've shown some belief in him. Um 
And I think the way that McCullum sort of talked about it, and I don't know how much players listen to this and, and how much it does build them up. Um, I know um, from playing for Hibiscus Coast third grade, when Bordy <laughs> gives me raps, um, you know, it really does sort of, you know, make me go out and, and have that confidence to, um, you know, to score runs. But um, I think the way that particularly Brendan McCullum talked about him, everyone was sort of saying, well, he, he bats down the order for Surrey. What, why is he batting at three? And he's saying, well, because I think he's one of our best players and what better chance to do it than batting at three. So kind of almost saying, nah, this is a positive, not not a negative. So I think that, that mindset has been really, really key. I think the fact that they've probably said, mate, you've got this gig for a period of time. You don't need to worry about the next tour or um, you know, the next summer. We're going to give you that kind of extended run. And, and I think the other thing is, you know, he's experienced some success, 100 early on against South Africa in his career. Um, and then he's, he's obviously had some lows, that Ashes series that you mentioned as well. So I, I think, you know, he's going to be all the better for that. I think probably one of the biggest things, though, is he's had to learn on the job. You know, we're not playing enough quality first-class cricket around the world, let alone in England. So if they've backed him and they think he's got the talent, then the only place that, that he can actually learn to do that, unfortunately, is at the top of the game. I completely agree. I mean, we asked this question when England put Ollie Pope at three, is, is in, are England setting him up for success? And the reason that that has panned out to be the right thing is because they've backed him for a period of time. They haven't given him three tests and then dropped him and then brought him back and then dropped him again. They've stuck with him. And the benefit now is he's able to grow into that role, as you've said, with the backing of the coach, with the backing of the selectors and not no, not worrying about when he's in the pressure moment is this decision going to cost me my place in the team? And so even though he's out of his comfort zone a little bit from an order point of view, from what was traditionally seen, the mental state is there because he knows that's got he's got the backing and that's the real change, I think, that's working well for England. It's funny, though, you say that because it's it's sort of the reverse conversation that everyone's saying about Zach Crawley, that it's almost people... Everything that I read is, you know, it's cruel to keep him in there because he's just not, you know, he's not performing so, so well... He needs to go back, first-class cricket, score runs and all that stuff. I mean, one, I don't think there's first-class cricket for him to go back to at the moment, is there? It's all Not the, until probably September or October, no? Yeah, it's all 100 and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, I don't know. Is it the same Is it the same for, for someone like him? Because, yeah, I mean, the way he's got out all summer, really, is like, it's not how you would expect an opener to be getting out. I mean, we had, we had similar conversations around probably Will Young in, in that uh, England series as well. And, yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of... I feel like opening the batting is tr- changing anyway. It's not like you just come in and bat like Jeffrey Boycott. That doesn't happen anymore. But, you know, I mean, h- how are you feeling about Bink- uh, Crawley's and Binksy? Because, yeah, he's certainly the one that I keep seeing as it's cruel to even keep him in there. Well, look, they've got to sell newspapers is, is, the, <laughs> is the main thing. Um He's been given some backing. They've made some strange comments around, you know, we don't expect him to be consistent. Um, You know, he's a match winner. That's what we expect him to do on occasions. He's not always going to fire. I think that that's cricket, right? It's a weird game, isn't it, in a way, that you are going to fail far far more times than you are going to succeed. I look around this table, and I'm pretty sure all of us have been dropped at some point in our cricketing career hands up who wanted to be dropped and who would have wanted to go back and play a lower grade or would you have actually just wanted to carry on because you back yourself to come right um I, I, look i know from my perspective i'd have always wanted to play in the best game that i could and, and would back my ability to come right so i don't think he's thinking about that um I, I do think it's just it's really really disappointing i think that um you know yesterday's you know hero to an extent in terms of setting up a, a pretty decent run chase has now had two low scores against a world class bowling attack in conditions that were bloody favorable um in a test match that let's not forget we're talking about 3 days they only got 30 overs in on the first day this was a two and a bit day test match essentially mm. um and england have got you know their asses handed to them so let, let's put some context around it and Ultimately, yes, his his first class average does not suggest that he is going to succeed at Test cricket. But every ounce of me looking at the way that he plays means that when he clicks, 
he's going to click and he's going to click big in, in the way that, you know, if someone like a Michael Vaughan did yep. in that 2002-2003 um, Ashes series where he scored, I think, 766 runs at an average of about 173. So I've, I've got something sent to me here on my screen from... from Stuart, you want to talk about leadership from South African camp? Oh, I just wanted to read Dino Elgar's quotes before before the game. I I, I just I'm growing in love for D, for Dean Elgar. I do love the the you know I guess just the the confrontation that he has. It, it's it's we I'm going to back my team, and I just yeah I, I just love it. So you can you can read them out. I I didn't want to pull out my phone on the uh, during the podcast, but but go for it. I've got two here that are favourites of mine. The first one talking about Bears ball. Dean Elgar says, I've got absolutely no interest in the style that they've played. <laughs> and then a little bit further down, which is which is quite apt, and he looks really good when you say this before the game, he says, I'd like to see them do it against our seamers, which is incredible, incredible leadership, isn't it? If you're a bowler, if you're a player in this African team, you're like, I'm I'm getting behind you and, and putting it up them. A- absolutely. And, and I think um, I'm, I might throw this to, to Raja or Baldy because I keep throwing all the English questions um, at Binksy, but... I, I want to pick up on something that Binksy mentioned before about kind of the the calmness in the dressing room because I think that when you when or certainly when I think of the England approach at the moment and maybe it's tied back to how I thought about McCullum's approach at times for New Zealand and that I didn't really I wasn't always on board with how he batted and it frustrated me no end that when he would you know go running down the wicket and get out you think about that kind of batting and that kind of approach and think. That's not calm. But then it feels like the dressing room is calm and is kind of clear-headed because of that approach that they have. And, and I'm finding it hard to kind of reconcile where those two things sit. And I think the media is also finding that difficult because they're jumping on the, oh, you know, people are getting out playing a, attacking shots. It means mm. that they're not calm. Mm. When England have been successful in those run chases, it wasn't because they were taking an undue amount of risk. It was they were incredibly clear in their thinking and in their where they identified opportunities to attack. So if you think about Johnny Bairstow in that innings he played where he hit 17 balls into the stands. We just at, kept bowling short time. At that deep square leg, he said, well, okay, I'm going to take on that shot. Or if you're going to bowl dry to me outside off stump... I'm going to take on a punch through the covers through the offside because you've left me a gap. He didn't take an undue amount of risk in that situation. Yes, there's a man out, but it's on a short boundary. I've identified that that's an opportunity where I'm going to attack. So when England identify with really clear, calm thinking in the dressing room, these are the opportunities that we're going to take against these bowlers. That's when they're successful. When they have a little bit of muddled thinking and they haven't quite identified those opportunities, particularly early in their innings, that's when they're taking undue risk and it looks bad from an optics point of view. Sometimes, yeah, you get a good cherry in your neck off. Fair enough. You can't blame an opening batter for that. But if you take an undue risk and then get out, that's when the media starts to climb on you. But I think the, I think the thinking in the dressing is incredibly calm. England play a way that they're comfortable. Dean Elgar has set his side up to play in a way that they're incredibly comfortable and he backs them to play in that way. And it's a clash of two styles, which I think is very entertaining to watch. The other thing is that when you're doing something as outrageous, I use the word outrageous, as Bears Ball, um, just having someone go, this is how we're going to do it, sort of calms everybody down. There's no actual other option at this stage. Mm. This is how they're going to play their cricket. And whether you like it or not, this is, you know, we will win some, we will lose some, but this is how we're going to play our cricket going forward. Three things. England didn't fry, coin the phrase buzzball, a journalist did. <laughs> they don't even like it themselves. Number two, I think on Dean Algar's comments, brilliant, sells newspapers. Um, I like Stokes' response to it was, you know, he, he essentially said, I'm really happy that, you know, Dean says he's not particularly bothered about all this, but all he can do is talk about it in press conferences. <laughs> um, and the third thing, and picking up on that sort of clarity of, of mindset that England have had, I think it's easier to have that clarity of mindset chasing a target in the fourth innings than mm-hmm. it is setting a target in in a, in a third innings a or a hundred first innings. So yep. I think a lot of that, yes, conditions we've talked about, um, but again, a, a lot easier to go out and go. We know we need to get three hundred. 
That's why England have been successful in white ball cricket because they've had that clarity of mindset. It's no surprise to me that one of the biggest architects of that, Johnny Bairstow, in that white ball success has been one of the guys who's been able to translate that into the red ball game as well. Joe Root as well. Let's not forget, he was a pretty big cog in that 50 over wheel mm. uh, for a period of time. So you know that's where I think that that kind of clarity is coming from. But they're not going to be able to do that. Um, as consistently, it took them from 2015 getting their asses handed to them against you guys in that World Cup that forced that reset from a, a, a white ball perspective. There's been that red ball reset that's been talked about. Um, the reset stalled a couple of times, but we've had to call the help desk. You know, we've <laughs> uh, turned it off and on again with yeah, the West that's, Indies. That's the key, just unplug um, things. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's the stage that we're at now. Um, at the moment, you know, the first four tests, it was, you know, it was all working perfectly, but. Um, unfortunately, you know, we're hitting control alt delete again um, <laughs> as we come into this second test match. Well, just on the second test match, are we going to see any changes, do you think? Well, it depends whether or not the Sun and the Daily Mirror are picking the side or whether it's <laughs> going to be Brendan McCullum um, and Ben Stokes. I, I think the change we might see is um, Ollie Robinson come in for Matthew Potts. Matthew Potts, don't get me wrong, has had a, you know, a pretty decent start to his test match career, but... Um, I don't think this is a rest and rotation thing. I, I don't think it's a deliberate plan, but I think it, you know, it is potentially time uh, for Robinson to come into that role. I can't see them leaving uh, Jimmy out. And we don't really have a pace option, obviously, with Ollie Stone, Joffrey Archer, Mark Wood, etc., or injured um, Jamie Overton as well. So, I, do, you I, think, do you think that's fair? That Potts is, is... Absolutely. Because, like, it, it's not the bowler's fault what happened there. Yeah, but this is the way that the game goes, isn't it? The batter up and you, you, ch you change your bowling lineup. So, um, look, I, I, that's what I think will happen. Um, so, I, I don't see a change at the top of the order. I don't think they'll, um, you know, uh, listen to the press too much and, and send Zach Crawley off to play a bit of 100 cricket and, and maybe some club cricket um, in preparation for a winter away. I think they'll stick with him. And I think they'll stick with him until the end of the summer as well, at least, if not beyond. And, and uh, I guess before, as we transition to kind of the New Zealand uh, stuff, the, the Future Tours program was was announced. And uh, I, I think the one thing, I guess, that has relevance to this series and, and I suppose all the South African stuff that we've just been talking about, very clear in that Future Tours program that South Africa, and I think they've come out and, and, and I was going to say admitted it, and I suppose is, uh, you know, we're looking at it as a, as a negative, but they've, they've come out and front-footed and said, Yes, we've we have not prioritised Test cricket. We've prioritised our white ball cricket. We've prioritised this T Twenty league that we're starting up. I just think it's a real shame that you know. I think what Binksy you were saying just before that they play five Tests is all they play over the next five Tests each year for the next three years in this Future Tours program. This side feels like a side that's got a lot of potential, a lot of youngish players that and. I think we're just not we're not really going to get to see them. I mean, uh, you know, Baldy's old uh, Rabada versus Broad debate that came up in the in the Hall of Fame. It, it's not going to help Rabada's case if he can't play that many tests. So, yeah, I just think it's a a, a real shame, and I, and I suppose you know there are consequences really for New Zealand around what mm. we've done in, in the future tours. But yeah, I, I don't know. It it paints a grim picture. This future tours program, can, if you you know, relate it to what we talked about uh, on Baldy's big rant last week. Yeah, I'll keep it brief. Otherwise, I'll suck all of the oxygen out of the room again. The shame for the fans is that we're not going to see these premier cricketers in their prime, these guys in their prime, Potts, Rabada, Ngidi, Cummins, Jofra, etc. We're not going to see them as much as we would want to as, as fans of Test cricket. And that's the real shame. Uh, ignoring all of the minimum viable product, which is effectively what, the, the non-Big Three nations are saying we're going to deliver a minimal, minimum viable product for Test cricket and, and do other stuff. That's the real Seamus fans, and that's what le has left me feeling disappointed from this Future Tours program. Do you think that it affects the, the World Test Championship's validity if you've got a team that's playing five tests a year and then teams that are playing 15 tests a year, you know, like India and England are probably going to play that, I don't know, what they're going to play, but it's probably something it's a lot, around yeah. that. The, the, I was just saying before off air as well, the, the, the only uh, the only three test series in the next, I think, five years that, that it sort of covers the cycle involve a big three nation. There, are, mm -hmm. I don't think there are any non-big three series that don't that last any longer than two tests mm -hmm. throughout this whole period. Yeah, no, I think it's dead in the water, isn't it? 
as a as a product and as a concept now, regardless of which way. So if you've got a team that's playing the minimum amount of tests, as Baldy said, if they do well, there's going to be a question mark around whether or not they should be at the top of that table on a percentage of points available basis because they haven't had the test of having to back that up over a longer series and a, a higher amount of test matches. And then conversely, if they don't go as well as a side, they'll be pointing to the fact that they've not been afforded the opportunity to play as much test cricket. So it's not really um, a, a fair representation of a form over that period of time. So either way, I don't think it can win unless that there is a, a higher minimum number of matches that need to be played across that cycle. Mm. Um, and look, it's a real shame, but as we said off air, the boards themselves have had to make these decisions because they can't make money off of test cricket unless you are one of those big um, big three nations. And that's a real shame, um, particularly with a you know New Zealand hat on as we all live here and would love to go and see more test cricket. It's a great day out when you go to the Bay Oval. It's a great day out where you, when you go down to, to Hamilton or uh, the Basin. So you know, not to have that, I, th- I think is yeah, it's such a shame for for the game. Oh, absolutely! I mean, the the Australian. Baldy, why are you laughing? Oh, cause just because a didn't. day out in Hamilton. <laughs> no, <laughs> what about Eden Park? You know, you don't enjoy your days out in Eden Park. Well, we're not not for a test match, no. Well, and and es- especially when you turn up and your, your team's forty five for eight or whatever <laughs> the last time we played there. Okay, that scarred him a little bit. Move on, Stu. Oh, look, I, I guess I was just going to say, you know, on that front, I think we have three tests against England, you know, coming up. But the the tour that I was most anticipated is the Australia, Australia coming to New Zealand. Because I think it's quite clear, as much as we build it up, every time we go to Australia, we seem to get absolutely hammered. So I'm not as looking forward to that series as much. Uh, but I really want to see New Zealand play Australia in, in New Zealand conditions and see if that can, you know, change the balance of it. But it's two tests. You know, that that was the big series, I, I think, all New Zealand, you know, as soon as that, if, if they, you know, got a notification that the Future Tours program came up and rushed to their, their computer screens, which I don't imagine many people <laughs> did. But if you did, then uh, that was the one that you were kind of looking out for. And, and yeah, two tests two-test series, but I guess moving it to the uh, the current side and things, all of that stuff that we're talking about, the load of cricket and all of that, I think since we've talked, the Trent Bolt news dropped, right? And the, that Trent Bolt has decided to stand down from his New Zealand contract. We've, we've I guess, had some similar conversations around Nisham not getting a contract, which two very different things, but I suppose they'll probably be both in the same circles now. They're both... Uh, you know, both signed up for uh, the UAE League. They're both, uh, I think Bolt, I've just seen as a marquee player for the, the BBL. So we're very unlikely to see them play much domestic cricket here in New Zealand because, well, I think the BBL overlaps quite a little bit with the Super, the Super Smash. Smash and then there's the, the UAE one. And so we, we, with Bolt, though, it feels, it feels more important because... And I think that there probably does need to be some clarification from New Zealand cricket, or maybe there doesn't, but around what he's going to be able to be involved in, or or maybe from him what he wants to be involved in, because he is a frontline player in all three formats. Test matches has been maybe slightly on on you know one of the la, you know last team is picked. It seems like Saudi is is kind of the one that's picked in in all formats, but. I think we're going to have, you know, I, in my opinion, Trent Bolt is one of the best white ball, ball bowlers in the world, and we've got a T20 World Cup coming up, which I'm sure he still will be involved in. But then, as much as I've been saying the uh, ODI World Cup is in February, March, uh, it has actually been postponed till October next year. Um, so that that's actually quite a long way away from now when he's decided to, you know, step down from that contract. Are we still going to make allowances for him to do to play because? We haven't necessarily done that with someone like Colin Monroe, who's gone uh, gone ahead and gone to play, you know, different formats around the world to make more money. Again, they're probably on different levels of, of where they are and, and the balance. But I don't know. Do you guys feel like we do now have to make allowances for Trent Bolt, or is, is this just a situation where, you know, you move on and, and it's next next cab off the rank? Two things. With all due respect to Colin Monroe, um, we're talking about a guy in Trent Bolt who is 
arguably still at the top of his game across all three formats, making this decision and has been one of the first players to do that. Um, probably the only parallel you can draw is some of the West Indians who, who went off and played in a lot of that franchise cricket um, and the, the West Indies board were pretty pissed off with that, right? Mm. Um, the, the second thing I think is with the Future Tours programme, which we've talked about, I'm sure that Trent Bott has got that news prior to making that decision has gone, well, hold on a sec. If we're only going to be playing, you know, four or five test matches in a year and my availability window allows me to play in some of those, do do I really need to be centrally contracted for 12 months in order to play um, that form of the game or, or another form of the game? So I think that boards are going to now have to really, really seriously look about the way that they structure those contracts and no objection certificates and how players are going to get released. It, it might almost be that um, a little bit like in soccer, they get released from their, um, their club or their franchise sides to go and play in an international window mm. rather than they get re- you know released from their um, international side to go and play in a franchise window. So I, I think that this is, he's going to be the, you know, the, the uh, is it Jean-Pierre Bosman of, of cricket. He's going to be that sort of forerunner um, to the way that I think a lot of boards are going to have to go, probably outside of, again, we come back to it, those big three, India, Australia and, and England boards. And, and Raj, I guess from a New Zealand point of view then, if if it comes, because the, the wording of that release, the media statement that, that we got, it was, it basically said, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it said we will prior, we will prioritise people that have New Zealand contracts, essentially. So, you know, we th- there's no guarantee that he's going to be picked for some of those games. Are, are you going to be like? Where do you stand on that? Because are you going to be disappointed if New Zealand goes well? Sorry, Trent. You know, you're here. You're in New Zealand, but you haven't played enough lead up games in our domestic cricket to play in this Test match because you've played no four day cricket for a year. Yeah, I actually imagined this question coming and I thought I'd be quite angry about it, quite grumpy about it, but I'm actually going to take a slightly different tact and say I don't mind it as much as I thought I would have. Someone like Trent Bolt who has played a lot of cricket for New Zealand, at what point has he given enough to New Zealand cricket that he can go away now while he's still on the downward slope of his prime, he's still a very, very good bowler uh, and go and make mega bucks somewhere. I mean, he's he has 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 he done his bit? Who's going to make that decision? Has he actually fulfilled his requirements to New Zealand cricket? I, I don't actually have a, a massive problem with him doing that. Do, would I have a problem with someone like perhaps a, a Devin Conway going away and doing the same thing? <laughs> I would actually be grumpy about that because I think there's been a lot of investment, a lot of time put into someone like him, and they have to give back to New Zealand cricket and then the and the the country really mm. us me. Give back to me. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a little bit on the fence, which I'm not usually, but I don't mind it as much as I thought I would. There's a parallel here with Australian rugby. So Australian rugby wasn't in the state financially or in terms of its performance that it could afford to contract its best players all the time. Money was available elsewhere. And so that's how the Gitto Law came about. And we've seen several iterations and variations on Australian rugby trying to figure out how best to accommodate national duty, and I use those words advisedly, with playing in the domestic structure or playing overseas in Japan or France or or in the English Premiership, wherever. So I think there are going to be variations and, and ebbs and flows along the way for New Zealand cricket as they figure out how to navigate this, but it's not going to go away now. There will always be or almost always be some situation where they're having to now think about, okay, we've got this player on sabbatical or playing overseas and we want them to come back into the national setup. How do we do that? Are we going to say minimum number of tests, minimum number of games, you know, age, what have you? So there's there's going to be some thinking that 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 goes into that. Are they going to adopt the New Zealand rugby structure and allow players to go on a sabbatical and play overseas for a couple of years and then come back? You know, all of these things are probably things that, that the, the the boffins at New Zealand cricket are, are working their way through and we as fans are just on the receiving end and going, OK, well, what's, what's going to happen with Trent? Oh, and it, I mean, absolutely from what you said, Raj, that Bolt has, Bolt has totally earned the right to, to do that. I Yeah, certainly not, not disputing that. I, I guess it's more, I'm just thinking from almost the the other angle and saying, does the board just have to, what are all the words now, agile and nimble and, and all of those words, do they have to actually just go, look, 
the, you know, this is the kind of situation that the the like Baldi just said, this is going to happen more and more. You would think teams that are players are going to be going from this league to that league to whatever kind of tournament. Even you know, even New Zealand. New Zealand has just done this tour of. Europe and now the Caribbean and then they're going to Australia. It's like a stag do. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, if, uh, that'd be a nice stag do. But uh, yeah, like if they, you know, I think that they're going to, I would say they are going to have to, the boards are going to have to say, well, look, actually you're our best player. If you're available for this tournament, you're going to play. And, and same with test matches, same with whatever. I, I actually agree with that. I think that uh, to an extent. So like, for example, if we're going into a test series or a tri-series or whatever, I have no. I, I would prefer that they played the players that were contracted because at, at some stage you have to move on. You can't just always go back to the well and and keep picking Trent Bolt till he's thirty seven just because he's only playing twenty twenties and he'll turn up for the odd series and the World Cups. I think that you move on. You you've got a structure there. You've that's why we've been blooding people all through the the three different formats. You move on. I think if Trent Bolt is available, we have some injuries. Bring him in. Why not? Uh, that's how I think it should work. Whether it whether it actually plays out like that, I don't don't know. We should probably get on to some of the the actual cricket now that's that's just taken place. New Zealand has, uh, I, I think, this is uh, the first time we've ever won a T Twenty series and the first time we've ever won an ODI series in the West Indies. I think the you know thirty odd years that we've been going there. So you know, as, as much as West Indies maybe on paper is struggling a bit, I think they're now uh, you know. Baldy keeps saying there's there's no jeopardy for for these one day sides and these uh, bilateral tournaments and thing or series and things, but the West Indies are are now in a bit of strife in the ODI World Cup qualifying realms. It looks like they probably will have to go through that uh, you know that that qualifying tournament. But but what have we actually learned? Probably more so from the Black Caps point of view, Raj, from from this series, both the the T20 and the ODIs. Yeah, I guess starting with the 2020s, the, the key thing I took away from it was I think we have settled on what our A side, what our first string side looks like. And I like the look of it. I mean, un- unfortunately, Finn Allen isn't probably in that side with mm. Conway opening the batting uh, for all three one, uh, 2020s there. And I don't have a problem with that because I think you need, you know, back in the day, I think Steve Smith would have been a great opening batsman uh, when he was uh, lighting up the world with, with his um, spectacular Idiosyncrasies. Idiosyncrasies. Um, yeah, so I have no problem with that lineup with Conway opening the batting through to Kane and Phillips batting at four. I like the look of that. Phillips at four feels nice, doesn't it? Feels great. And then Mitchell at five, he's actually someone who can cover everything. If we lose mm-hmm. wickets early, he can bat through the innings. If he's just there to finish, he can finish along with Santner and Jimmy Neesham. And I think that's a really, really balanced top seven. And then our bowlers will do, will do what they what they do. I think that our, our bowling lineup is experienced enough with that white ball, especially in the 2020, um, 2020 format, that we're going to be a very hard side to beat, I feel, and when the World Cup comes around. Yeah, it feels like uh, the only real spots in that batting lineup is whether they decided, okay, we'll put Finn and, and probably you're dropping Michael Bracewell out of that that conversation. But I mean that that Phillips Bracewell or Phillips Mitchell Niche and Bracewell combination is just it's, it's worked so well for the you know the three months or three years or however long it feels like we've been on this tour for. So you know, I, I think that. I agree that that feels like they they have kind of earned the right to be our frontline side for the C20 World Cup. Yeah, and I actually think that Bracewell has done enough to show that he's really useful in turning conditions. We do have a few uh, tours over to the subcontinent coming up, and he could be very useful uh, in that setting. And we found that turners or pitches that are turning are actually kryptonite to our top order at the moment. We're really struggling when it's mm. when it's turning. So him being in there gives us some batting depth as well. So. I definitely think he's done enough to be useful. It, it was funny though seeing uh, seeing those lineups and and I guess then flipping it to the the ODI side and then you go that you know I mean start of this tour if you'd gone okay well Finn Allen's gonna not gonna play any of the T20s but he's gonna open in all the ODIs I, I you know that's sort of something that you wouldn't have picked. Same with kind of uh, you know no there was no Phillips no no Nisham for uh, you know at least the opening ODI and. I, I don't know. Just where where are we on Nisham? Because I feel like he's the one that you know we just said before. He's got no you know central central contract for New Zealand. There was some debate about okay, where does that mean for him? Is, has he done something to New Zealand cricket? What 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 is going on? Because everyone that looks at it from the outside goes okay. Well, 
he's in the front line T20 side. He's in the front line ODI side. Or, or am I am I missing something? Is he, you know, is he not in our front line ODI side? What's go, what's going on? For me, he is. I think he should be. He's a very useful player, and it, it's falling into that template of having a you know a large number of all rounders in the middle of that eleven that you pick. And I think that he can be useful. We know with the bat, but he can be useful to break a partnership, just chucking one over in or two overs if it's an ODI, uh, and to, to sort of break a partnership or wrestle back some some momentum. Yeah. I guess he's a, a pretty vanilla, you know, right arm seamer, isn't he? And I think we've seen a lot of, of teams now, they want to have more spin options. And mm-hmm. you know, that's the introduction of Bracewell. It's obviously Santner. Um, you've got Sodi in and around the side as well. Um, uh, Mitchell, interestingly, hasn't bowled a hell of a lot. He, yeah. He's been a, a seam option for you. Nisham's clearly a better bowler. But if you just want to burgle a couple of overs, he might be someone that can do that job. So it, it might just be that kind of horses for courses piece, particularly around those subcontinent tours that you mentioned yes he's a good finisher with the bat but you know is he really going to be effective with the ball in those conditions as well so uh, my, my two cents as an outsider looking in is in and around the squad but I, do, I don't think he's in your you know he's in your best 11 anymore it, it's another I mean you touched on Sodi before again I think it's very surprising that he did not play in ODI and I, and I think Bracewell's emergence I guess he's the one person that I, do, I don't think he's been I don't think he's missed the game and this whole, I mean, you know, again, have not checked, have not fact-checked this, but it it feels like... Don't worry about fact-checking stuff. It's yeah, much better when you don't. Exactly, exactly. So, it, it, you know, all of this rest and rotation and, and you know, guys like Phillips and Nisham not playing games, I, I'm surprised that Bracewell has, has just played every single game and it feels like maybe that's a sense... Maybe it's, you know, one, we're giving you every opportunity to show that you're in this side... We want to, you know, get you confidence at this level, but also maybe that actually you you are an integral part of this side now because you're our second spinner in this ODI side. When you play the T20s, you're an important finisher. You know, I guess it's establishing those roles, and it feels like he's someone that they they have a very clear role for what they want to do. I'm I'm still not convinced that if we go to an ODI World Cup, I mean, I guess this is in a year's time now, so people can go in and out of form, but and. And I suppose his bowling has been developing, and I guess another year of that development is, is you know, you would think is going to help that. But sure, I, I mean, I don't know that backing him to be a, a front line, I'm going to bowl 10 overs in an ODI is, is something I'd feel especially comfortable with. But, you know, he's done, like you say, he's he's done enough to be a really valuable player member of that squad. And Martin Guptill, he's the guy we don't really talk about too much, but he scored about 130 runs over the six games. Is there is there questions around him? I guess I guess going into these sort of World Cup, uh, you know, the, the short form tournaments, probably you don't want that instability. But you know, he's going to have to start returning some numbers shortly. Oh, yeah. Look, I, I don't know. I think we had this this conversation before the last T Twenty World Cup, didn't we? And yeah. then he was one of our best players. So I think you just trust his his form. I, I you know, I, I, again, I I think in a year's time, when you're looking at that T Twenty or that ODI World Cup. Because when you look at this lineup, and we've already talked about it, the, the likes of Phillips and Nisham and things missing out from those ODIs, Finn Allen is certainly being groomed as, in in my head, as the Guptill replacement. And yeah. and when you look at that T Twenty lineup, and you go Conway can go up to open, there's no reason why he couldn't go up to open in the ODIs as well. And you have Guptill or Allen, and then Conway, and then you have all of those the string of you know Williamson, Latham you know, whatever, Phillips, Nisham, Mitchell, all, all of those those string of players. And there, there are other players who have been in around the setup lately as well. And I do think we're well stocked for, for batting options. So, yeah, you know, I, he's going to have to continue to perform to, to stay in that side. But at the moment, I think for this next tournament that we're looking at, he's, you know, I, I would pencil him in for every single game of that T20 World Cup that we're involved in. And just switching over to the West Indies, uh, I don't know how much of the actual games everybody watched, but that very first 2020, there was some incredible, incredible fielding going on by the West Indies. Unfortunately, that was the... the uh, I mean, the peak of the that was, that was the peak, rather than um, the actual standard. But what do you make of the West Indies? I think that we've talked just about earlier about you know people going around playing fan- franchise cricket they've lost a lot of stars a lot of people missing from this series 
what, what do you make of the West Indies? How are they going to get through this? Uh, and, you know, they really did get tailed up at home. Can we say that? I don't know. But they, they lost a series. They lost two white ball series at home. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you look at the run the run of those games, I would say that you, you do come away. Well, I mean, I've got rose-tinted glasses on anyway, but I feel like you come away from those two series thinking that New Zealand is the better side in both formats. But again, I think you... You look at that West Indies lineup, and it's so hard to look at it and not think about all the players that could be there for the West Indies. And it seems very cryptic all of the stuff that's going on. Obviously, Andre Russell has been has had a few comments and stuff around, you know, whether people are available, whether they're not available, what what the actual line of thinking is. I have no idea, so I can't really comment on that. But you know, I think that they. There's certainly the talent there. I mean, you know, I talked about it with Ngidi that that kind of surprised me. It stunned me that, you know, Shay Hope averages nearly 50 and uh, from across 100 ODIs, and that's an incredible record, and, and he's not someone that, I don't know, his name his name is not someone that is on my radar as, as you know, one of the elite uh, ODI batters in the world. And, you know, when you even just looking at some of the innings that they played, and I don't know, the sound of the bats, they've, they've got good bats in the West Indies, I'll tell you what, that some of the... <laughs> Some the of lower the lower order hitting was some, incredible, and some of the noises yeah. off the bats were yeah, just just unreal. So the the talent is there, and I, I don't know. It, it, it just feels weird that they they can't bring it all together. There can't be a way to just get all of this talent together because the, the yeah, brilliant brilliant side if they could get everyone involved. I feel like miss, missing you know Dre Russ, missing uh, Karen yeah, right. Pollard. I feel like they've lost their X factor to some extent, Binksy. Yeah, look, it's puzzling, isn't it? And I think some of the cryptic comments maybe will come out as we build into the T20 World Cup and, and squads are announced for that because you've got to think that West Indies would be a better uh, chance at that tournament with the likes of Karen Pollard, with the likes mm. of Andre Russell um, in, in that side as well as a couple of other guys playing a bit of franchise cricket as well. DJ Bravo is going amazingly in the 100 at the moment as well. So, um, yeah, look... It, it, it is just a, a real shame that, that you know they're not necessarily getting what you would say is their best eleven on on paper, particularly in a home series. But um, you can understand the earnings potential of these guys in in the tournaments that they're playing. One sort of bright shining star out of this, uh, uh, you know, these two series for me for the West Indies was was Akil Hussain. He bowled really really well when he he only played that last. 2020 and he changed the game as soon as he came on to bowl uh, and he bowled really well throughout all that white ball stuff he's a bit of a superstar I think I think there's a lot to like in that bowling attack I mean if you have a look Jaden Seals is 20 um, Alzari Joseph is 25 Tis you don't want to mess with him he he is a <laughs> seriously intimidating Alzari Joseph I would, yeah. I would yeah. they would not I, want to face him I've liked Obed McCoy as well yep. the angle is really good from him yep yeah, Kevin Sinclair's only twenty two, so there's lots to like in the emergence of their of their bowlers, and I think we I think we've hit the nail on the head in terms of their their superstars. If we could get one of them, just one of them, just to be there as a as a guiding influence in that on that batting lineup, you've got enough there with Puran, uh, with Shy Hope, uh, Shimron Hetmeyer, and the, and all the others. Shimar Brooks. Yep, all yep. of those guys. There's enough in there. Kyle Mayers has been really impressive. You know, the emergence of Kyle Mayers as an international standard Test cricketer has been fantastic. Burst onto the scene, etc. So they're, they're just that one. They're one or two senior pieces away from being a really dangerous side in that World Cup. And I, I for the sake of the tournament, I really hope that they into that tournament with as many of their best first-choice players as possible because they're so entertaining to watch, their fielding standards, etc. The thing about Matt, he's actually a really talented player, but I just think he, he's a bit... His, his role is a bit confused. One day he's opening the bowling and batting at four. One day he's opening the batting and, and not bowling at all. So it's, it's, it's really kind of strange to me there around the roles and, and what they're actually it's doing. But because they need him to do so much at the moment, right? An drive extra, the bus. Yep, an extra player or two in that lineup, and he's just doing... 80% of, of what he's doing now and would, and would probably be better for it. Well, Baldy, we, we've talked enough about the big three nations of England, uh, West Indies and New Zealand throughout <laughs> the course of the podcast. Let's get a bit of uh, um, sort of associate nations South Africa, cr- 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 cricket in uh, and talk some Australia stuff. Mm. David Warner um, may be returning to leadership, but signed a big bash deal, I think, for the Sydney Thunder. They want him as captain, which would need to overturn this leadership ban that Cricket Australia put in place following 
um, what was it called? Yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the Cape Town, the, the Cape Town incident. Bunnings Gates, yes. Yeah, the Cape Town um, incident. So, so yeah, th- thoughts on yeah, thoughts on what's gonna gonna play out there? No, this has rattled around like a pea in my brain for a few days now, and I'm not quite sure where I've landed on it yet because there is an element of if you're responsible for something like that, then you have to pay a he- pretty heavy toll. But also, if once you've paid that toll, you should be able to come out of it and and re-enter. I was going to say society. That's not quite. That's not quite that bad. Um, but he 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 should be able to to rehabilitate and show that he is capable of of rebuilding trust and and becoming a leader. And if you think about mistakes that we've all made in our lives, all you can do is own them and try and rebuild that trust with your peers, your cohort, your friends, your family, whatever. Enough time has passed now that I think that we should start to consider it. I'm not sure that I would rush him back into the captaincy of the Australian team, but if his franchise sees fit for him to lead that team and they think that he is the best person to lead them forward, and if someone like, I'm not sure if Shane Bond is still involved with the Thunder this year, but if he was, someone like that, I would trust their judgment as to whether or not they think he's going to be a positive on-the-field influence and also a cultural influence as well. I'm going to take the opposing view just for some balance. Uh, Please do. <laughs> I I think that you can be a leader without being the captain uh, on the field. I don't think that he needs to uh, be elevated to that that status, which is a, a privileged position. He, if you think about it, whether or not he was the mastermind of this uh, Bunnings Gate, I don't think he's a mastermind of anything. But yeah. Whether or not he was, and and you know, I don't want to unpack all that. At the end of the day, that's what the optics are: is that he he sort of masterminded that. I don't think that him being captain of a BBL side, for example, is going to mean he's going to do any more or less sideline interviews than he's going to do anyway. I think it's, you know, he can be there as a leader. He can support somebody else who wants to be leader. There's no reason for him to have that sort of privileged position if, uh, you know, he has been tarred with a brush that that did happen. Does that mean I win? Any other business? No? Look, I'd love to talk about the New Zealand A-Tour to... Uh, well, but, can, but I think I'm going to get, get cut off. Our, get that on our Patreon, can't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, you, you carry on, because you finish up the show. Otherwise, we'll be here for another 10 minutes talking about Nathan Smith and uh, and Joe Walker. Well, look, as promised, we are going to clock in just under the hour mark for our uh, two-item agenda podcast. But it's been a pleasure uh, to be back in the room talking this week in cricket. We'll obviously have a lot more coming up. We've got the reintegration of a f- another Australian cricketer, Tim Payne, but news breaking on that as well. So I'm sure we'll uh, cover some of that over the course of the next few weeks. But we will be back uh, next week, second test in that series, um, England, South Africa. So, um, yeah, some Dean Elgar quotes I'm sure we can uh, we can pull up this time next week. And, of course, a return for the Cricketing Hall of Fame as well. So do dip back into the back catalogue. It's getting to the pointy end. But for now, it's good night and God bless from us all here in Auckland. We'll see you very soon on the Top Order podcast. Thanks a lot. 